We are joined this afternoon by Josh Pearson, Indy Next driver and driving in the WEC just wrapped up Sebring. I, I know you Sebring maybe didn't necessarily go how you wanted it to, but what's Sebring like in a sports car? Um, yeah, you know, first of all, a really disappointing way to start the year, obviously. Um sure, sure. You know, we started on pole. Um Ollie did a Ollie did a great job to 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 put us there and, and had a fantastic lap. So um, you know, we got off to a promising start. And we had a car that had, you know, a lot of pace, um, but really disappointed, you know, especially since the issue that we had that ultimately ended our race wasn't something that, you know, I or the team could do anything about. Um, it was just, uh, it was unfortunate that, you know, um, whoever installed the camera, it wasn't properly mounted. And, um, you know, so honestly, it's it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's probably a one in a million um, that it would end up hitting the fire extinguisher. Um, so, you know, really disappointing, but. Sebring itself is is such a historic track, you know, the place hasn't been repaved, you know, I think since they um since they built it. So um because of that, you know, it has a lot of unique challenges and and the one that of course is talked about the most is the is the bumps. Um it makes for a very a very unique setting and a very unique um challenge when it comes to setting up a, a car because we you know there's a lot that we have to deal with. Obviously, we want the car to be as low as possible, but it's hard to make it that low with the bumps around Sebring because if you run the car too low, you're, you're constantly bottoming out and, 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 um, you know, ultimately breaking the floor. So, um, it's, it's a big, it's a big challenge and, um, for not only the drivers, but also the engineers, because, you know, the bumps on your body, especially it's, it's sure. very tactical. It's very physical. So, um, and, you know, you combine all of that mixed with the heat that it just, you know, makes for a very, very difficult and challenging race for not only the car, but you know, also for the drivers. And, and we see that, you know, year after year with, with not only 1000 miles, but also the 12 hour. So with the, with the incorrect mounted camera, it, how a, you know, it fell, hit your fire extinguisher. And then what happened? Did the fire extinguisher actually go off? Cause I don't actually remember hearing about it too much during the race mm -hmm. other than. Like, I think they played a, a radio transmission of, of, you know, hey, of what happened, but that's all I, I can remember. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure what radio transmission they would have had because when, so it's it's a very interesting situation. Um, the Orca chassis, and this isn't something that, you know, Orca themselves would be sure. responsible for because the camera is not theirs <laughs> and they didn't mount it. But um, we have, uh, it actually stems from an issue that we've had in the past. So we we do have... United themselves will go over, you know, we have like a document slide of uh, pre-race notes and, and in the slides, there's some tools for the marshals on the outside of the car. Um, and one of those is a neutral button, which we've had in the past. We've had debris sure. hit the neutral button, which shuts the car down completely and puts it in neutral. Um, and that's so the marshals can move the car. If, you know, if it's stopped in gear, they can hit the neutral yep. button and it'll be able for them to move it. So in the past, you know, we've had that happen last year with Phil at Lamar, where some debris um, hit that button and shut the whole car off. But if that's the case, there's a little red light that'll illuminate in the dash. And then as a driver, you need to figure out which button it is and push it to unactivate yep. it and yep. get back in. Um, that light wasn't illuminated for me. So I knew that wasn't the issue, but I still felt the left side, which you can feel without having to get out. Yep. That's why I opened the door is I was feeling that button. Um, and that was fine. So I, I immediately knew it wasn't one of the buttons. The next thing that I checked was the headrest. Um, because the headrest actually has a, it's a, it's a lock-in system, but if the lock comes undone for whatever reason that can shut the power off to the car. 
Um, so I checked that the headrest was locked in place. So I knew it wasn't those two things. Um, so my last kind of, you know, I've, I've never had, we go over the fire extinguisher, but not in this scenario for me, you know, I figured that I didn't really go to the fire extinguisher in my head because, um, (laughs) I, I was thinking it had something to do with the camera itself since the camera runs off of the car. Um, and it's a live onboard camera for, for WEC. I figured that, you know, with the camera flying around in the car and it's a big camera, I figured that one of the cables or something that had power to the car had shorted um, and it had somehow shorted power to the car. So I don't really know entirely because when the car shut down, you know, I think the only radio transmission they would have had for me would have been, I have no power. Cause that's the first thing I said. Yeah. I think that's, I think it was something simple like that, that, that we heard. I don't, it was so a couple was days only, ago. That was the only comment I was able to make before the whole thing completely <laughs> shut down. Um, and it's not, it's not Orca's fault. Um, so we're the team, you know, we're investigating how we can stop it in the future. But essentially, next to the neutral buttons on the outside of the car, there's two fire extinguishers. Um, obviously, there's one fire extinguisher in the car, but there's two handles on the outside of the yep. car that the marshals can pull. So it didn't hit the one for the driver that's on the dash. Um, what it hit is those two handles on the outside can actually be engaged from the inside of the car. So if you, I didn't know this, but we know now, if you hit it hard enough from the inside, there's like a, a an extension of where you can see where the cable is. Yep. If you hit that from the inside of the car, it'll actually pull the cable out on the outside. Um, and even if the fire extinguisher cable gets pulled slightly out of place, the, the entire ignition, the power, everything shuts off. Wow. Um, so the onboard camera, when it was flying around, it just so happened to perfectly hit the extinguisher cord, which, which from the inside pulled the extinguisher out on the outside and um, ultimately shut the whole car down. So um, not where my brain first went. The really sad part is if, if I had, uh, if I had gotten out of the car, which WEC does allow um, the only rule that they don't allow is they don't allow you to have martial help. So um, if I had gotten out of the car, uh, all I would have had to have done to restart it is push the fire extinguisher cord back in and then power would have been enabled to the whole car. But um, it's it's one of those things where, you know, your your brain doesn't go there. And also, you know, even when I have the door open. Sure. Um, it's, man, it's, I, I have so much respect for Phil at Le Mans for getting out and hitting <laughs> the control button because it's it's scary when you're stopped on track, you know, and and you know, you're like, man, I, I should get out and look, but, you know, cars are flying past you so quickly and it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's scary to get out. So, um and we, we did, you know, that was what happened is when I got the car back to the garage, one of the mechanics pushed it in and it fired right up and I got to pit lane and, and jumped out. But the problem is, is they wouldn't let us go back out because I had Marshall help to get back to the pit lane. So um, it's such a freak accident. Um, and it's really unfortunate because, you know, everyone worked really, really hard. Sure, and we had, sure. we had a 45 second lead. You know, we were, we were way in the lead. We had a huge, a huge gap and and um yeah it was just it was just a it was just a perfect storm of of things that went wrong and um i know what to do now uh, obviously and you know the team we're going to look at some ways that we can try and negate the issue um but you know really really unfortunate and i mean there's no telling you know i i don't know somebody said the fire extinguisher went off in actuality but um i haven't i don't know what happened um entirely because i i would have sure. i would have seen something in the car like foam or something but um, that wasn't the case. So it's possible that it tripped it a little bit. So they were, they were weighing the fire extinguisher. But, um, when I get here for the, when I, when I see them tonight, I'm going to have to ask, uh, if the fire extinguisher was, was fully was weighed and if it was lighter, but, 
Um, somebody said that it actually went off. So uh, I'm not sure that would have let us run anyways if it had actually gone off. So yeah, I think I heard that later on the broadcast, but I, I don't remember. But anyway, so kind of taking a step back from from WEC and you know, for those who don't know, you were the youngest race winner last year at Sebring, I think it was. Yeah. But, you know, how did you first you know, get into racing and, and start racing? And, you know, how, how you know, how did you get to the point where you're like, all right, I'm going to run WEC. I'm going to run in the next, you know, work my way up kind of almost on two different continents at, at once. You know, how did that kind of career path go? So it, it actually stems from, you know, I, I think part of a lot of motor racing um, stems from connections, you know, and it's it's not really it's more, who do you know? Right. Um, sure. And, and, you know, building those connections from, from a young age and for any young driver, I think is important. Um, and, and, you know, it's not terribly difficult to find a lot of these people considering racing is a very, very small world. You know, a, a lot of the time you can find a driver that you would have never talked to that's worked with an engineer you work with, or, and that's part of the reason I think it's really important to be um, sociable around the paddock and be well-liked in the paddock because, you know, everyone knows someone. So if one person happens to not like you, you know, that could potentially influence an entire team um, to not sign you. So it's, it's racing is, is such a small world that I think it's very important to, to have a good connection with, with everyone in the paddock. Yeah. Um, try to, obviously it's not possible for everyone to like <laughs> you, but, um, you know, try to be a, as friendly as you can in the paddock with everyone. And, and, you know, in general, everyone that you meet is, is, is really nice and lovely to work with. Um, so my driver coach, um, Steven Simpson for a, for a short, but you know, long story, um, was started working with me in 2020 when I was still on the road to India in USF 2000, obviously, you know, I, my whole life, I've wanted to, to race IndyCar. That's been my goal, um, has been to race IndyCar. And so I, I started out on the road to Indy and Steven Simpson came in as a driver coach because when I joined, when I started racing cars, you know, I, I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, coming from karting, you know, the, the car world is very different. Uh, it drives differently. You know, there's new things you have to worry about. Um, it, it's, it's not the same thing. And, and so a lot of the racecraft you learn in karting gets carried over. But in terms of driving style, you kind of have to, to readapt and, and re- rethink how you, how you drive. So yeah. Um, he was brought on and, and at St. Pete in 2020, he started working on this crazy idea. And he's like, look, I, I drove this car professionally. Um, and he's like, I think it's a great car to learn and develop. And I think that you do things in sports cars that you wouldn't normally do before getting to Indy cars, such as pit stops, you know, fuel saving tire management. He's like, all of these things you're going to have yeah. to learn when you get to Indy car, but what better way than to learn them before then? So that by the time you get there, you're, you're ready. And I absolutely uh, agree. And, and, you know, that has been a, a big part of it, but I thought he was crazy. Um, you know, I, 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 when he told me like, let's go run Lamalus, I was like, man, you're, you're crazy. Um, and I tell him that all the time, you know, every time we're at dinner, I was telling him like, man, I thought you were, I thought you were out to lunch. I thought you were crazy. But he, uh, he definitely, you know, it was very smart actually. And, and Steven drove for Richard Dean in, in junior formula when he was younger and so that's the connection to United. And, you know, the, the, that was also my connection to PR one, the first year when I ran IMSA and, and WEC for both the full season, kind of taking a step back from, from junior formula and, and focusing on, on what I could do to improve myself in the sports car world. Because I think it's, you know, I think it's such, it's such a unique chance to, to do and to develop. And I think more young drivers should definitely turn to, to sports car racing because you're required to have a silver for a lot of the races. So yeah. For the IMSA endurance races, which I run with TDS, you know, you're required to have a silver. Um, you're required to have a silver for WEC. 
And, and so you, you look at the big picture and it's like you as a silver, you know, you're not really going to be as fast as the platinums or the golds, but you don't have to be. So that makes it a great proving sure. ground, and a great learning opportunity. Not only do you get to work with these really, really fast professional drivers that have a lot of experience, but also, you know, you have this kind of added bonus of getting to drive with them, looking at their data, working directly with them. And, you know, you don't have the added pressure of having to be as quick as them because that's not really your role in the team. Uh, obviously, I want to be, and I push to be just as fast as I can every single weekend because, you know, I'm always learning, always improving. But, you know, if you come into it for your first year, you know, my first year, I didn't look at it as I, I want to be as quick as Ollie and I want to be as quick as Alex. Sure. I'm looking at it as, you know, let me learn from them and have the ultimate goal of being just as quick as them but also understanding that my role within the team is, is more to hand the car off to them without, without damage, you know, to kind of set up a strategy play to win the race. Um, and so when I looked at it that way coming in, you know, I think it took a lot of pressure off of me, but also it gave me the tools to learn and to succeed. Um, and so I think that sports car racing is really important. And I think that, you know, it holds a special place in my heart now because I've, I've come into it with, uh, from a very young age, which most haven't. And, you know, tried to absorb as much as I can and, and, and learn everything I can. And I've definitely, you know, had the right people around me and, and Steven Simpson, Richard Dean, Zach Brown, you know, everyone yeah. at United, PR1, um, now TDS. You know, I've, I've had such friendly faces around me and, and people that have really given me a lot and, and have helped me to, to better myself as a driver. So um, that's that's really what it's all about. And, and I think that it's definitely, you know, something that more young drivers should should look into. But in terms of, you know, how I got into it, it, it really all started from just that, that one comment from Steven at St. Pete and, and things kind of developed pretty quickly from there. You, you raised an interesting point that I have probably asked. Sports stars, they're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see, they've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo. Phil Hughes, Justin Fashionu. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star, a new series from Crowd Network. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast. Two dozen or three dozen like road to indie guys over the years about no pit stops and getting to IndyCar and you know how can you simulate or practice a pit stop? And I never once said maybe you guys should try a sports car race or two just so you can get the feel of in laps and out laps and everything like that. So you know when you hopefully get to IndyCar one day, that experience is actually helpful. Or if you don't get to IndyCar, you're already kind of, you know, you've got that sports car experience at such a young age. Is that also, you know, a, a dream like, Hey, you know, maybe if for, you know, whatever crazy reason 
IndyCar seats dry up, you're happy in sports cars? Yeah, you know, I I don't think that, you know, even if I didn't manage to get an IndyCar seat, um, which fortunately I'm I'm in a position where I, I technically have one. Um, so yeah, you know, with the Ed Carpenter deal, I'm in a position where I don't think that would be the case. But um, you know, if I was in that position and and was struggling, you know, I definitely would say that I'd be happy driving sports cars. Um, you know, I I love working with the people and and having that kind of team atmosphere between um within drivers which is very different you know because in single seater your teammate is kind of like your worst enemy in a sense because they're (laughs) driving a similar car so um you know if your teammate can win technically so should you you should also be able to so it it it, you know your teammate is almost your worst enemy um whereas here you know your teammate is actually your greatest ally Um, so it's it's a huge kind of flip-flop and and i love the team atmosphere i think it's I think it's something different, you know, working with other guys because you know you win together, you lose together, and and there's kind of a new string of emotions attached with it. Um, it's just it's it's a it's a whole other world, you know. I think a lot of motor racing is, you know, the difference yeah. between car F1 and sports cars. I think all of these categories, you know, all the way from even you know V8 supercars in Australia, I think they all have a very different atmosphere to them. Um, and I'd love to experience as much of it as I can because you know every single thing is different, everything's unique all these cars have a unique driving style and, and unique standards. And, and I think that's part of what makes motorsports such a special sport is, you know, no two categories are the same. Um, yeah, yeah. And they all have different principles, different ideas. So it's, it's something, you know, extraordinary, I think with sports cars to be working directly with other drivers and, you know, you, you realize pretty quickly that some are better at it than others, especially at the coaching aspect. Cause when you're required to have a silver, you know, you, you kind of need to do a bit of coaching because it's yeah. in their best interest that I'm as fast as possible. So, and, you know, you see it a lot of time, like with Alex last year, you know, I think he got better at coaching throughout the year. Um, but also it depends on the driver because certain drivers get coached differently. So, um, and take after, after different influences and Alex, you know, towards the end of the year realized that he could just be really hard on me, um, <laughs> and, and kind of yell at me in a sense, but, you know, I, I appreciate that because if, if he's pushing me to work hard, then, you know, in turn, I know he's working just as hard and so is Ollie and and the whole operation runs. But, you know, I think if there's one kink or, or one gear that's out of place, you know, it, it stops turning. And I think it's, yeah. I think it, part of what makes it so impressive is that, you know, all these people can work together and, and the cogs are all there moving. Um, but it so easily can go wrong. And especially when you run the cars for, for how long we run them for and as hard as we do, you know, just like Sebring, it's, you know, these one in a million things happen and, and it's, it's, it's it's mind-blowing to me but that's why i love it that's why i do it and and you know that's why i keep coming back ultimately is is to learn and improve and yeah i'd totally be happy driving sports cars um obviously it's not where i'd like to end up i'd like to end up in of course of course and ideally you know i'd I'd like to end up in indycar but in a situation like elio castro nevis is in or scott dixon where you have a ride for the four long races in imsa yeah Um, and that's kind of part of the other idea of, of of staying in the sports car paddock is you know, giving those top tier teams in, in GTP, um, and hypercar, you know, an option for, a, for, a, for a third for, for IMSA and, and, um, for some, for other events. So, um, you know, I think it's all about connections, but definitely important for me to, to stay in that paddock. And, and obviously I'm, I'm in a really good spot right now with United, um, and TDS. So, um, yeah, honestly, just trying to stay, stay in it and, and trying to, you know, keep my head in a, in a level mind after, sure. after the spring. Um, so but... you, I almost forgot about the Ed Carpenter thing. So, you know, something we don't see very often in IndyCar is 
you know, some sort of driver development deal or a reserve driver type opportunity, or at least it's not like public, like, like F1 is. So how did the opportunity with, with Ed come about? And, you know, obviously we've only had uh, Sebring us, uh, where were we? St. Pete so far on mm-hmm. the, on the IndyCar calendar, but do you, you know, spend time with the team yeah, during the race weekend? You know, how does the kind of at the track aspect of it work too? Yeah. So obviously um, a bit of inspiration from Europe, right. In that kind of development driver category, we see it with, you know, Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes. Um, but I think it's, I think it's something that uh, especially is that's not utilized enough in, in America. Um, so, you know, coming in, it was, it originally started as trying to find a team to run Indy next with, which yeah. at the time was going to be Indy lights. So um, you know, I, I knew I wanted to get back into the, into the formula car paddock and, and to have my kind of, you know, a foot in the door. And, and, and even though I knew I wasn't gonna be able to do the full season with the wet commitment, I wanted to be back and, and learning so that I could, you know, the next year have a good shot at a championship. Um, and so, you know, kind of going around the paddock and speaking to a lot of the teams, the IndyCar teams, you know, they have some incentive to run in, yeah. in the next teams. Um, but you know, it's expensive to do. And so not a lot of them want to do it. Um, and frankly, I think there should be more incentive because, you know, who wouldn't love to see all of the teams that are on the IndyCar grid, just like, 100%. Uh, you know, who wouldn't want to see them all running in Indy next team as well. And, and I think that that really helps for driver development. Um, so, you know, I, I spoke with, with a couple, with a couple teams and, and really just a couple people that were interested. And I spoke with Ed Carpenter in, in Indianapolis at the, at the NASCAR weekend. Okay. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it was me, my dad and Steven, and we were really, we were looking for teams. And but at the same time, we were also just looking to speak with a lot of the IndyCar teams. And this development kind of driver idea was something that we had petitioned to, to some people and, and more about talk to ourselves. And we kind of looked at a bunch of teams on paper and we're like, you know, who, who would be a good idea to do this kind of deal with? Um, and to me, you know, the standout on that list was Ed Carpenter. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, they're not regarded as one of the top tier teams, but I think they have the potential to be, you know, they're a team sure. that has won races in the past, has very good cars on ovals um, and has done their fair share of, of driver development in the past with, and even in the present with Renus VK and, and Joseph Newgarden. So, you know, a really strong team um, that, you know, I, I think is right there, you know, close to the big teams, but at the same time has a, has a little bit of development to do. But, you know, I think that's part of what makes it such a such a good opportunity is by the time I get to IndyCar, you know, racing with Ed Carpenter, it, it takes a lot of pressure away from me. Um, if I had gone with a team like Andretti, you know, Penske or Chip Ganassi, um, if you end up with them in, in their first year of IndyCar, you have a lot of pressure to perform because you're, you're running for a team that, you know, is historically a front running team. So it becomes, you know, I think it, it this added pressure is almost a hindrance, I think, to you as a driver, you know, I, I, the ideal situation would be to, you know, have a year of learning and a year where mistakes are going to be, you know, noted, but sure are acceptable. Um, and I think that taking some pressure away removes a lot of those potential mistakes. Um, so I'm really grateful to, to Ed Carpenter for, for, you know, thinking about this and, and actually taking it up and, and also, you know, doing it in a way that's very unexpected. Um, you know, the information that he provides to me, over a race weekend and, and how he helps out it, it was really, you know, St. Pete was the first time we see it. And, you know, although the Indy next race didn't end how I wanted it to, you know, I, I hit the wall, sure, but, sure. um, 
you know, it's been a while since I've, since I've, I've crashed a car. Um, but I think that it was good, you know, to an extent to, for me to learn, you know, like to know in myself, Hey, I was pushing, um, and to realize why the mistake happened, but, you know, more so, I think the standout for me of the weekend was that was how much, you know, Ed Carpenter was involved in, in the whole thing. You know, he was on the pit box for every single time I was in the car, okay. um, watching very closely. And, you know, he even had a radio, so, um, he knew it was happening. He never said anything on the radio, but I think he'd <laughs> like to in the future, but, you know, I think it's really, really, um, for me, it's really nice to see, you know, how much he's, he's involved and how much he's paying attention and how he's trying to help. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I went over to them throughout the weekend, you know, occasionally yeah. when I had time after I was done for the day. Um, and I even, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, anytime I'm at the track, I'm going to watch the IndyCar races with them from the pit wall. Yeah. So, you know, I watched the race from the pit wall with them and, and had a radio and, um, but, you know, for me, it's really positive to see how much, you know, he's involved and, and, you know, really that he's on board with the whole idea. Um, and not that it's just, you know, kind of a signing and just to have the namesake, you know, it, it is a, it's a real development deal and, and he's really contributing. Um, and so that's, that's really positive for me. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm really appreciative to, to Ed and, and the whole team, you know, everyone there for, for giving me the chance and the opportunity to, to help me develop and, and, you know, ultimately giving me a safe route into IndyCar. Awesome. Yeah. I was, I was wondering how kind of how involved the team would be, but all right, I've got two questions left. I'm going to put you on the spot with one here in a somewhat non-racing question. So we have a, a pit lane parlay driver Spotify playlist. You get to pick any song that you want to listen to like pre-race or post-race or maybe in a sports car. Uh, I know that's, you know, probably not your best, best idea, but uh, you know, what are you, what are you picking? Well, I frequently listen to music on the sim, actually. Okay. Uh, so I, it wouldn't be that weird to listen to music in the car. <laughs> I know a lot of people always tell me they're like, oh, that's such a bad idea. Um, but when you do it on the sim enough, you know, I think it was Daniel. Get used to it. You'd actually like to listen to it in the car as well. Okay. All right. You get used to it. It's kind of more like a background thing. You know, yeah. a lot of people study the music as well. So, and it can be anything, but, um, you know, I have a lot of, um, I've listened to a lot of classic rock kind okay. of like some Metallica here and there, but I really just like guitar music in general. All right. So we will go I with Metallica. Not, I, I can't, I ha, I do have one specific song for yeah. you though. All right. Let's go I for would it. Go with um, Goat by Polyphia. Nice. It's the top one in there. I will add it to the playlist. Where is the playlist? Okay. Well, while I find the playlist, I will, I will add it in there. And then maybe for once, I'll actually tweet out the link to this because I keep forgetting every time I've talked to people in the last couple of weeks to, to add to, to post it. But so wrapping up here, this is, might be a tough question, might be really easy. You're going to look at your WEC schedule and you're going to look at your Indy Next schedule. If you could drive one of the Indy Next tracks in a wet car and one of the wet tracks in an Indy Next car, what what where are you taking your your car car or cars i guess that is a really <laughs> that's a really good question actually <laughs> um i think the obvious one for me in the indy next car where i'd like to take it in europe would have to be here in spa okay yeah um, yep this is probably my favorite track in europe you know spa has this amazing atmosphere it's such a unique course um with lots of, you know, challenging turns and, 
and obviously, you know, Arouge and Radion is is so famous, and it's it's honestly a blast to drive. So I would have to take it here. But the other way around is really really interesting. Um, where would I want to take? I'm gonna say I haven't driven this track yet, um, but I'm very excited to get onto it because the layout and seeing the onboards, it's probably one of my favorite street circuits visually. Um, so I'm gonna say I would love to take the P2 car to Nashville. That's that's what as soon as you said street course, I'm like, he's gonna say Nashville. Yeah. Good choice though. All right. Well, we'll wrap it there. Again, man, thank you for you know the time this afternoon. Best of luck throughout the season. I'm sure I'll see you at the track soon. But yeah, good luck, man, and and thanks a lot for the time. No worries. Thank you very much. I appreciate your Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle, or padel as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with a pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!